The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu. Welcome to Ask Alex, episode 198 on the OneOuter.com podcast, sponsored by americascardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from americascardroom.com, simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the OneOuter.com website. Follow us on Twitter at OneOuter.com and join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash OneOuter. This episode and all other previous episodes are on OneOuter.com website and via iTunes for free. If you want to send questions in for Alex on a future show, then please email questions at oneouter.com or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group and we will get them answered on a future show. Alex, it's Thursday. As usual, you've had some problems getting here in time, but you're here now. You're more than welcome. What have you been up to? Uh, I've been good, Barry. I mean, you guys know what I've been up to. I've been doing too many things with too little time and running around, but things have been good. My uh, my mom came into town for a few days, so I'm playing a tour guide while she's here. So I took her to the 9-11 Tribute Museum, which was, uh, if you want to ball your eyes out for two hours, that's a great place to go. Uh, took her to the top of One World Trade, which has an amazing view of New Jersey, New York, all the different neighborhoods. You can see the Bronx, you can see Queens, you can see Brooklyn, you can see Ellis Island, all of Manhattan, all the way to Newark, and yeah, for about 50 miles in any direction. You can see out into the water, Statue of Liberty. It was really nice. you know, 37 bucks to go up there, so it should be pretty nice. Uh, that said, sorry, I had to make sure everybody knew I was old and white there for a second. <laughs> yeah, it's not cheap. Yeah, it's not. I mean, that's kind of my mom is just her jaw is dropping when she sees me buy anything here, and I'm like, yeah, this is how it is. It's uh, and you get what you pay for because uh, New York is just a ton of fun. I really love it here, but. They, they, they get it out of you. But anyhow, I took her to uh, the Museum of Modern Art, and they had Van Gogh's Starry Night uh, up there. That's kind of like the Mona Lisa for New York. Uh, took all the pictures, the selfies, and everything. Uh, that was nice. The other day, I walked her around my neighborhood, let her see Queens. Uh, a little bit. And the other night, uh, I took her and uh, my girlfriend to a Broadway show. Uh, it was called The Band's Visit. It's uh, it's about a band, like a police orchestra from Egypt, go, trying to get to an Arab cultural center in Israel to play a concert. And they just get stuck in an Israeli town on accident. And they're talking with the Israelis. And the real theme of the whole show is just how pretty much everybody experiences the same things, uh, whether you're Arab or Israeli or whatever. And there's, it, it's, it was just so, it was so well done. It, it was incredible. Uh, I'm not, I know this is supposed to be a poker podcast, so I'm going to cut myself off <laughs> right now. But yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun, but at the same time, I'm still trying to run my business while my mom is here and still trying to get to the gym and keep everything together. And obviously not the easiest thing in the world, but it's, it's been a pretty good time. I'm hoping to, uh, sounds like somebody's running a radial arm saw outside. I think the construction workers from Costa Rica finally found me, Barry. It's, it's time. It's, there is never any noise. It, here except for when i do the one outer podcast i mean there's uh there's a nursery across the street but uh when it's this cold the kids aren't playing outside so i figured it'd be safe so obviously a guy ran a effing radial arm saw 
And yeah, Barry was referencing uh, the trains today. I had a train uh, drop me off at the wrong station, which I've never had before because, you know, you figure with a subway it'd be pretty damn hard to take a wrong turn. You got all three or four of them. And uh, anyway, uh, no warning that they were going to do that. So they dropped me off at the wrong station. I have to walk to another part, to another station. Obviously no transfer, so they charge me for that. So, you know, that's why we pay an extra 5% income tax here in New York. So MTA can do a wonderful job like that. But yeah, anyway, things have been good. I've been living, been sending out a lot of our podcasts to our listeners. I got a new video up, which you guys can check in the liner notes. Barry's going to check that out. It's a He's going to post that up, and it's a new preview for how to think like a poker player. I treat you guys too good. Even on my off weeks, I'm giving you hour-long free YouTube videos with strategy content and podcasts and articles. So, yeah, that's pretty much what I've been up to. What you been up to, Barry? To be fair, I think you're just balancing out your train stories without giving all that for free. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. We should spend the next 20 minutes on how sick you are, how you fell straight on your face. And, uh, I wasn't going to. No, I'm, I'm exercising the right to not mention that. Um, but I am sitting with it up just now. So uh, that's uh, all we'll say. All right. I guess I have nothing else to discuss. Uh, I'm trying to think. It's one of those things. I'm thinking maybe at the beginning of these shows, we should bring in more poker topics and just poker life topics. Because the first half of the show always did have a little what's happening, what have you been up to. But I'm trying to think uh, of what to come up with. I usually do prep for this show. Uh, I didn't really have a lot going on. But yeah, sorry, go ahead. I said, really? You usually do prep? For the I show? usually, by prep, I mean on the train, I write three notes, like hit these notes, or like, oh, this concept was really good for your students this week. Yeah. Uh, do that. No, uh, uh, not, it, it's really funny. I wrote this like really long email. I've learned something. Uh, before I get into this, let me get a little bit of my coffee. This is some heady stuff. He needs some caffeine. It got me thinking, in this day and age of, I think it's really shoot to kill first on social media. You get a lot of that, right? And it's a lot of you're here today, you're gone tomorrow. In the, It's a whole lot of what have you done for me lately. When you're working in the public eye, we've talked about this a little bit, which is Barry loves that he can cuss people out on Twitter, whereas I no longer take that option. And he was discussing how nice it is to be able to be yourself because you were saying if you were working for Morgan Stanley – and you just had one off-color remark in your private podcast. They could just—I was going to say another term. I was going to say they could escan you. They could—they could just let you go like nothing. And you were saying what a luxury it is to work for yourself, right? Well, forget even working for Morgan Stanley. I think people that work for McDonald's in this day and age, and uh, I always use that as a not a derogatory term, but just for like a you know an average job, a McJob sort of thing, like. If someone's working in a local wherever, if they put things on Twitter now in the wrong thing and it gets a bit of traction and a local paper picks it up, they could lose their job as well. And it's about things that, like, yesterday were pretty ho-hum, right? Like, yeah. Ob Obama used to be someone who was, like, marriages between a man and a woman. And now that was, like... I'm old enough to remember, because I think I was 24 years old when that happened. I just turned 30, right? And now, I think a lot of people, if they just post something that's like, you're not 100%, 
for gay marriage, I think you could lose your job. And that's, it's weird to me that shift, like whatever you're feeling, you'll notice, by the way, I did not state any opinion. I don't care. I'm a libertarian. People can do whatever they want with private contracts, right? That's between, I don't get why the government gets to get in the way of anything, but it's weird to me how things can change in five years. And one guy could say one wrong thing and that's, that's it, right? In really, really your big lifeline is your people. The more I've been thinking about it, it's your email list. It's, it, there's a crazy thing. I was listening to this book. Uh, I think it was called Perennial Seller. I was listening to it because the only time I read now is with audible books. And he, the guy was saying, you realize that email has been around for 50 years, and I thought, well, yeah, that's right. They started in the 50s. I mean, the 50s, the 70s. And it was like a military thing. But email is probably going to outlive all of us. And the thing about an email is you see a tweet, you see a Facebook post. Let's be honest, 99 out of 100 Facebook posts are not worth reading. Let, let's let Because... Remember in the old days, you just wanted to see what your friends were up to or what movies they were watching or if they took some cool photos on their trip. Now it's like, and another thing about Trump. And it's like, okay, like, all right. I guess I don't get to find out how your kids are doing. But most people have tuned out on Facebook or Twitter for the reason that everybody is pissed off about everything at all the time. But an email is still something intimate. It's still, you get an email in your inbox, you like the person who sent it to you, you always click on it. And I've really been thinking, if you're going to run this business, there's a couple different ways to do it. One is you could try to appeal to everyone. And I, I get that approach. I get why people try to come up with strategies that could work in any game on earth, right? That is one benefit of the GTO style. I teach you how to beat up bums because I think most people are trying to beat up bums. But if you learn perfect GTO, nobody could take advantage of you, period. And I get why people look for that universality. I look, I get why people try to come up with an approach social media wise that appeals to all people. But then I think you're kind of, people expect this is why nothing ever sticks to certain personality types. Whereas if you try to act like you're someone else, people start, they start digging for something more. The problem why nobody can get anything to stick to Trump is like, Trump has been very brazen about who he's been for the last 20 years. Growing up in the United States, Anytime you heard about Trump, it was always with an air of vulgarity. It was, uh, I mean, the guy was on Howard Stern, for God's sakes, talking about what you talk about on Howard Stern, right? So when people try to get something to stick to him, it's not really going to work because everybody knows that about him already. Whereas I think if you try to appeal to everybody, you end up having to take on this air of like, I'm not going to take a personal opinion on this. I'm not going to take a personal opinion on that. I'm never really going to go too deep into who I am. And the second anything gets revealed about you and people, people feel like they've been lied to because they've kind of turned you into whatever you could be in their head. Right. Whereas I think the safer way to go about it, if you have a business on the internet as you do to a lesser extent with this podcast, and I really heavily do, is to just have zero filter, period. And never, you can edit yourself for, I think removing cursing is a smart move because people who are fine with cursing don't really care if you don't curse, but people who aren't okay with cursing really care if you start doing it. And but that's pretty much it as far as editing myself. And yeah, I wrote this uh, I wrote this email post on Monday and I jokingly called it my manifesto, but I made a point to not edit it at all. I made a point 
to slug an espresso shot and just write it the first things that came to my mind. And I sent that out. And it was a whole lot about like why, why I think it's so important to publish something every day for free. Uh, why I, I think that's really important because there's a lot of people that the example I use is if you're from Uzbekistan, you can be very much into poker. If you're playing on poker stars, there are people, there are Uzbekis who play on poker stars. But if they want to get one of my training programs, $100 is literally a month's wages. And I think it's the neatest thing in the world that poker allows you to make money outside the grid anywhere on earth. And I really think it's an imperative for men to have a way to secure funds outside of a grid anywhere on earth because you never know when political strife could strike your country and you'll be forced to move with your family and find a living in the off hours of the night in any way. And once you hammer poker, once you understand that game intimately, it is always there. They play poker every... I have not been in a country. I've been to 40 different countries. I've been to hundreds of cities. I have not found a city that does not play poker. You find that. That is, that is amazing to me. And I was also discussing in the somewhat of the hopeless romantic way, a little bit about just why I was a little bit more broke when I was younger and what it meant to me to like take a girl to the movies with poker money, which I didn't really have money for before when I was working other jobs. That was just my bills. That was what I was able to do that with. And, and also talking about, okay, I want there to be something free every day. Obviously, it's going to be really hard to get something free every day. You don't have the time. Nobody has the time in the world to have an hour-long YouTube video, a thousand-word article, or something new every single day. So because many of you people don't even know I've been publishing free content since 2007, uh, which I started publishing free content in 2007 because I wanted to attract backers and I needed to publish my findings on poker in some fashion and get their attention. Most people don't know about 80% of the work I've done. And the funny thing is, when people write me emails and they have a pointed question about something in poker, I'm lucky enough at this point, after 11 years of writing, I can send you an article or a video or something that should answer your question most of the time. And nine times out of 10, the person's never seen it. And they're like, I, I've been a fan for three years. I've, I've read everything you put out, I thought. And I'm like, well, I'm glad you wrote in. I'm glad, I'm glad I could send this out. But it made me think it's really cool at this point. You can publish something every day for free. Why that's important. Why free is important. Why people need that. Why I think poker is an escape for so many people. And why I think that's a good thing if you're playing with money you can afford to lose. Because, hey... You lose two bucks, not a bad thing. You win 19 bucks, uh, you can go out to the movies wherever you are in the world, hopefully somewhere where 19 bucks could still take you and a girl to the movies. Uh, that's great, right? I think that's very healthy. I think that's good. But anyway, long story short, I and I also said, by the way, guys, I do have to bring money into the picture because you got to keep the lights on. So there's usually going to be an unobtrusive uh, ad somewhere. I didn't put an ad in that email because I thought that would be really disingenuous. Uh, and I didn't put any ads actually in the next like couple emails. The response to that email, Barry, was staggering. I got, I got most of the responses were good. Uh, some people were like, I hate when you just talk to me that way like just send me the poker you know like shut up and send me poker content and i think that's a bad strategy because i think taleb talk our unofficial third panelist on this show taleb talks about that right which is if you just kind of edit yourself all the time what's going to happen is someday people are just gonna uh, turn on you whereas if you're just brazenly yourself all the time that's going to be the people that stick around you are going to be the people that actually know who you are, like what you're doing. But yeah, I got, 
I just wanted to take a second in this podcast to talk about that and how much I really appreciated all your guys' emails. Uh, that really, that really meant a lot to me. I got a lot of emails back from people saying, I really love that you do this. Uh, I really love buying the products just to support uh, there being something free every day. And a lot of really successful businessmen talking about, oh yeah, when I was broke, I had, you know, this, I had baseball on the radio that kind of got me by. And I see how poker could be that way for other people. And to bring that to other people is really fun. And to be able to further my studies with your stuff and support that is really neat. So I didn't really think of that in that direction, but it was really interesting to get all the different responses. And there was one guy who, uh, I, I want to say he was from Russia or something. I don't think he understood it all that well, but he thought he, I was saying I wasn't doing that well. And he was like, you know, I'm sorry, man. Let's figure this out. I'm going to get you to, you know, I know an underground game. We can do this, right? And I thought that I, I was very tickled pink by that whole experience, just being more authentic and being rewarded for it. Just, getting your group and you can always tell how much people love or hate an email based on how many people unsubscribe uh from your list whenever you get it and like there was like no one right and by the number of emails that came in it it was pretty staggering so i just wanted to take a second on this podcast and thank you guys for allowing me to be my weird self and uh I'd like to thank you, Barry, for putting up with it. Yeah, it's no, it's no problem at all. Um, the thing I was going to ask you quickly, but we do want to get into questions and sure. with Alex turning up late and stuff and I've got time, but it was just just in case I forget it, with you saying New York and obviously it is an expensive part of the world to live and you're quite nomadic in the last, certainly I've known you for I think seven years, and um, what's your sort of, I don't know, medium-term plan? How long do you see yourself staying there? What Are you planning on moving in a year or two? Or like just sort of, what, what's your take on that? That's a really good question. Uh, I've, I've been thinking about this. The, the one reason I came here is I really do believe, it's kind of an old American idiom, which is at some point you do have to live in New York. Nobody says that about California. Nobody says that uh, you can be in L.A. for six days and you will realize quickly no one has to live here. Right. Whereas you can be very taken with New York for a very long time. I've been here for a year and I still find things I just love. I do love the people I do. It, it's really to live in New York is to live in the world. You'll go to Flushing. It'll look just like South Korea. You'll go to Jackson Heights. It'll look just like Costa Rica. Uh, you it, it's a fascinating place to live in. I knew I wanted to do that <clears throat> before. If I figured if I was ever going to have kids, it was likely going to be when I was 35, 40, something like that. And I am not raising kids here, period. That's just not going to happen. This is not a good place to socialize an infant. Whereas it's a good place for a 30-year-old, 20-something, right, to have some fun, enjoy it. Uh, I, I was thinking maybe a few more years. I The other thing is the cost. The, the thing that's interesting to me is everybody in New York believes if they move from New York, all their problems will be solved because everything's going to be 12% the price. And I go, look, like everything here, like if you go buy food here, it's like 20% more expensive, 30% more expensive because of the real estate. But... It's your life is not going to be solved outside of New York and you get what you pay for, right? Bullhead City was pretty cheap out in the desert, but you get what you pay for. There's not a whole lot going on in Bullhead City, so they got to attract you somehow. So they shave a little bit off of the price, but they also got to shave off the quality of the steak you buy out in some of those casinos. You get what you pay for and I've lived in enough places to tell you it's never that cheap, right? It's never going to be that much cheaper. Costa Rica was, compared to this city, 
and compared to most places I've lived, was a lot cheaper. But if you are going to do the things that adults want to do, if you're going to cook with good ingredients, if you want to live in a decent place, it's usually going to cost money. And that's pretty true everywhere. Uh, and even like Costa Rica was cheaper, but it wasn't that much cheaper. So I'm at a stage in my life I can afford it here. I probably don't want to be out here for that much longer. The, New York does have a way of pissing you off really quickly. Uh, it's it's amazing. And there's a flip side to it. It's uh, It's hustle and bustle. And there are people here I don't particularly care for. Uh, the, it's, it's a funny, it's a funny little ecosystem, but that being said, I I do really like it here. And also I don't really know where else I'd like to live. So I'm really here because I don't really want to go back to Seattle where I'm from originally because Seattle is just as expensive as New York. And there's really not. Like, there's not, like, Broadway there. There's not 15 different sports teams to check out any night, right? There's not Central Park. Uh, There's not comedy clubs as far as the eye can see. But Seattle's just as expensive, and there's a lot of problems now with crime and whatnot. Uh, Maybe it's kind of selfish, but it, it feels like going backwards, which I'm not really a fan of. But... I don't really know where to go after this. I, you know, I've entertained the notion of someplace like Montana, just wide open spaces, chill out there. But I knew I didn't want to be overseas anymore because I spent 10 years outside of the United States. And, you know, it was all well and fun. I could do it again if I wanted to. Uh, But if I was really trying to make the most money from my job, I would go to India right now because poker is popping off in India. I would be living there. That's what I would be doing. I would be changing my whole life to go to India. Uh, But if I was trying to make the most money from my job, if I was trying to be the richest poker player on earth, that's what I would be doing. But I have other interests. I really want to do something as far as self-publishing, which I've been lucky enough to do, although it's always through the poker format. Uh, It's always through the lenses of poker. Uh, I want to do something with just writing, with things of that nature, and New York is perfect for that. And I, I, I had a lot of fun living overseas, but I'm getting to the age I don't especially if you want any kind of romantic life, it becomes very difficult when you're working through, when you're speaking with someone who speaks English as their second language, you have no idea how many things you say in common American English, which if someone took at face value would be wildly offensive. And there's this, it's things like that. Uh, It's really hard to make friends with people knowing probably in three years you're going to blow out of there. Uh, I really miss a bunch of my friends in Costa Rica. And and truth be told, I'm probably not going to see them much anymore. I want to go back to Costa Rica, but it's really hard with my job. And that kind of stuff really, it it got old. Whereas I guess in New York, everybody here is kind of, they're here for a few years, then they're moving out. So there's always the understanding of, okay, we, we have to make do with the time we have right now. So yeah, I get long story short, probably a couple more years. I, I could see me maybe going overseas like one more time or something, but I'm not truthfully, I'm not positive about that. I know New York is right for what I'm doing right now. Is it the song, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. That's what they said. Yes, yes, sir. (laughs) I wanted to see if I could do it. Okay, uh, right. Let's get into some questions. And um, let me see. Okay, the first one is from Aaron. Hi, Alex. Can you comment on what you consider the ideal scenario for three-barreling to be? We talking about three-barreling as a bluff or for value? 
I will. If you've got time, why don't you do both? Um, sure. Because he's not stated. Okay, uh, I'm gonna let you guys know in your games the tr the typical time to triple barrel bluff is never. The average person is very bad every time they do sociological surveys. I think that's the right way to put it. Sorry, I'm not trying to use big highfalutin words, but I think that's how they actually discuss it. But anytime they do tests of people saying like, you can accept this loss or you can gamble to possibly save and that they like cut you off. They're like, gamble, gamble. Humans are really bad at accepting losses. This makes, you guys have heard me say this spiel before, but I'm gonna say it again. This actually makes humans pretty noble. You hear the classic trope of a soldier jumping on a grenade because he cannot accept the loss of all of his friends, so he will sacrifice himself. That's incredibly noble. It also makes you a horrendous professional gambler because one of the things that is really crucial about being a great gambler is accepting when you've lost. That is part of trading as well. Uh, Barry, who is much more into that world, could probably confirm people, people are just really bad at understanding when they've screwed up and they just, it's the sunk cost fallacy, right? In that world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and anyway, and by the way, if I ever prompt you, Barry, and I'm wrong, let me know. I just trying to call on your expertise as well, because I don't know that as well as other people. Now, anyhow, um, so something I've noticed when I'm lucky enough to have uh, seen databases of many different networks, uh, my you, people don't send me the hands to combine because you're not allowed to do that. It's uh, also probably unethical to just do the analytics bomb that Facebook and Google like to do, right? But uh, one thing they will do is they'll pull up their database and they'll show it to me. And one of the things you'll see across every database with just generic guys who, you know, they know a couple things about poker. Maybe they're regulars. Maybe they got the money to be regulars or they're, they're grinded out poker pros, but they're, you know, they're just starting out. What you're going to find a lot of the times is 50% fold on the flop, which makes a lot of sense because you have like a high card or worse about 50% of the time. Then you're going to see it wavers a lot on the turn, but you're going to see a lot of like 40% fold on the turn. So that makes sense because about 40% of the time you have pretty garbage pairs. Uh, and then on the river, the funny thing is versus a triple barrel, you'll see a lot of times the guys fold like 20% of the time. You do not have a hand on the river good enough to call the triple barrel eight, eight times out of 10. People are terrible at triple barrel bluffing. I am always astounded when I get a student who can triple barrel bluff. It happens once a month I get to see that, right? That's a very fun part of my job. I don't get to indulge in that often. So, and the reason people don't triple barrel bluff is it doesn't work most of the time because you should do it. If you're gonna triple barrel, what you should do is when you have a pair post-flop, heads up, always try to get a heads up because playing against one player is much easier than playing against multiple players. So try to get a heads up, you get heads up, you got a pair, ask yourself, can I play this hand in a way that does not cap my range, right? So let's say the board comes king 10-5 and you have king jack. One of the worst things you could do if you're in the hijack your opponents in the button is bet flop, bet turn, check river, because you pretty much just told the guy, I have queen jack or I have a weak king or I have a 10, right? Now, un unsurprisingly, you guys have heard me say this line a lot, but I want you to remember it. Unsurprisingly, people play pretty damn well when they know what you have. So one of the things you can do is just bet small on the flop, bet 40% on the flop, 30% on the flop. Most guys will not raise you as a bluff. And then you get a discounted pot size to bet on the turn and bet on the river. So that river bet isn't nearly as big. And many guys will not be able to cap your range at that point. They'll just say, like, he could have a set, he could have nothing. So what they do is they call you eight times out of ten on the river. And if they're doing that, they're calling you with some tens. They're calling you with some jacks. They're calling you with some queens. They're calling you with some nines when they get really feisty. I've seen guys call with high guards there. You get three streets of value. So the best thing you should be doing is triple barreling for value most of the time, uh, especially with top pair, you should be really thinking about it. And 
again, this is why I really harp on those big raises pre-flop. Uh, and pe people don't. People have started pegging me as the 3.5x guy, the person who says, I don't think raising the 3.5x is that bad. And for the record, that was not my idea. Uh, you, it's really unfair to give me credit for that. Matthew Jonda was the first person who started speculating in his tournament videos on card runners. He started saying, I don't think raising big is a problem. I think actually it, it, it has some advantages. And he said that, and you know when you, you, get an, you hear an idea, Barry, it's probably one of the more pleasurable things in life where you hear an idea and just something clicks. You know that feeling, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's nice, right? It's not, especially with business, right? But I, I heard that and just something went off in my head. I, I went, oh my God, he's right. There's something there. And the thing about it is when you open a 3.5X, nobody, nobody three bets you, which really is bad in No Limit Hold'em for the people who are not three betting you because now they're on the defense for the rest of the time, which means usually when they miss, they fold and you miss way too much in No Limit Hold'em. But the other thing about it is usually only one guy stands up to you. This is excellent because one guy is typically not going to hit the flop all that well. So if you flop a top pair, even with a crappy kicker, usually it's okay. Usually you can go for three streets. That, now, you're going to value own yourself a lot. I'm just letting you know that. I do it all the time. I have played poker tournaments where I have triple-barreled value bet the second best hand four times in a row and the whole table is laughing their ass off at me. But again, if you gain the respect of poker players, just remember 95% of them are losing players in any red game. So you've earned the respect of losers. So if they're laughing at you, you're doing something different, which is a good indication. You might be doing something that can be profitable because if you're doing something that everybody else is doing, well, 95% of the people who are doing what everybody else is doing are losing. So it's a pretty good indication if you're playing like them, you're likely a loser. Now, when should you triple barrel bluff? The best time to triple barrel bluff is when you're playing against a grinded out reg. So this is really not fun to admit, but if there's a regular who I think is a little scared, I think he's playing a little over his head, if I know he's satellited into a tournament, I love it in live tournaments. I love it when I can put them all in because they have to table their hand. I love it when they traveled a really long way. Uh, those are the guys at a triple barrel. And it's usually, I'm sorry, it's usually people that I think the money is a lot to them. I'm not going to try to bluff a Swedish guy because whatever he bought, he, he bought into the tournament Let's say a Norwegian guy buys into a 3.5K tournament. Well, I mean, that's the price of like eight beers in Oslo. He doesn't really care. Now, I'm sorry, but if a Peruvian guy buys into that same tournament, chances are that's like $10,000 to him. It's a big deal that he's going to this tournament. If 40 minutes into the tournament, you shove him in and he, he's got to table his hand if he's wrong, I'm not saying they can't do it. I get picked off on occasion. I've bluffed myself out of two majors in the past five years. Neither was particularly fun to table, right? But most guys will blink. Most guys will do it on a board where you're pretty – most typical grinded-out pros will do this thing where – like the board comes like eight of diamonds, five of spades, two of diamonds. If they got a, if they got five, five, they got eight, eight, they got two, two, they got the set, they're going to raise. Because they see the flush draw, the straight draw, the way they make their bones when they're at home, the way they pay uh, for their daughter's diapers is you hit a set, you get the money in, you, you fold out the draws, you get the over pairs to put their money in. Case closed. And that's a good way to make a living in poker. It's also going to get your ass stomped in a poker tournament versus somebody who knows a thing or two. So what happens is I'll see that the guy will call me really quickly. That's a timing tell a lot of the time. Because if you have a set, you probably have to think about it, right? You'll see high stakes cash game players like flop the set and then 
do the cavalier call really quick. That that's really good because it'll get like the level two tournament guy who shouldn't be in a high stakes cash game <laughs> to triple barrel, right? But at level one, you'll see the grinded out pro throw in his call. And that that's one of those things. Okay, you just told me you didn't four bet me pre-flop when I three bet you, so I don't think you have kings or aces. Uh, you might not even, you know, might not even have queens. You call me real quick. Well, you got an eight. You got sixes, sevens, nines, tens, jacks. I think in a big tournament, I can make you lay that down by the river. So the last big bluff I can remember, I did a, I did a couple big bluffs in Atlantic City, but, like, the guy quit on the turn, so thankfully I didn't map the shove river. Uh, but I had a guy. He showed up. He was wearing all satellite gear he'd satellited into the tournament uh he'd traveled from canada so long hike in prague it, it was in prague he uh looked like uh he was touching the chips very gingerly i didn't know if he played much live poker anyway i thought okay it's a big buy and so he called me on some board where it was really likely he would have check raised his sets his two pairs uh and yeah, anyhow, he he did a the flush rock came in also in this case, and he checked really quickly. So some guys will like take a second there to decide whether to lead out or not. Anyway, he checked really quick, and it was I I don't know how to describe this, but after ten years of doing this, you kind of understand just a little bit more what each check means. And I'm usually not really that good at that, but. The check really looked like, please check behind. You, you know what I'm talking about, right, Barry? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it, anyhow. So the guy checked. It looked like, please check behind. Before I even thought about it, I just said, I'm all in. He spent about four minutes thinking about it. He folded. But the truth being, I don't triple barrel bluff that much. I, I just don't. Because usually, uh, usually you can eke out a lot of, Two things can't be true at once in this case. People cannot be calling your triple barrels left and right, and you're getting insane value. And also, it's a good idea to triple barrel bluff all the time. Those two things cannot exist concurrently. What you want most of the time, especially when you're playing with uh, recreational guys or semi-recreational guys, just get the money. Get the effing money. Always get the money. Triple barrel for value. Okay. Um, the next one, um, don't know if we should do this. Omi has sent in quite a large email with a few in parts, and I think I'm going to break that down for another show. So we're going to go to the next person. Omi, if you're listening on this episode, we'll deal with those questions on episode 199. Um, the next one up is from... Tobias Haller, and let me grab that one because that one was sent on Facebook. Um, And this one is, hello, gentlemen. I got a question about satellites. Is it plus EV to play satellites into more expensive tournaments that I normally play, or should they be accounted as a recreation expense rather than an investment? Assuming I have a positive ROI in the tournament with a higher buy-in, of course. Thank you in advance. Hey, Tobias, uh, great question. You frame that question in a different way, most people say. So one of the things poker trainers have to, and Jonathan Little, to his credit, is really good at this. I think he had a recent entry about why satellites are gambling. I really encourage people to check that out. The thing about satellites, the simplest way I could put it to you is let's take the old PCA sats. You play a $30 rebuy with 150 people, and at the end of the tournament, you somehow, of this tournament where first place is 16K and second place is 800 bucks and a pack of quarters for the laundromat, <laughs> you, you somehow win, right? And, and then imagine you win this $30 rebuy 
a big buff security guard comes up, grabs all the money from the cage that you were just grabbing for your win, drags your ass to a tournament, throws the money down to the dealer and says, he's in for all of it, freeze out. He can't play. He, he can't leave until he busts or runs it up. This would be the biggest variance bomb you have ever heard of in your life. And yet you'll have people discuss satellites like it's a genuine great investing strategy, right? By the way, this is coming from somebody who loves multi-table satellites. I have an article, probably one of the articles I send out the most when people are writing into me. Uh, you can just look it up, Alex Fitzgerald, multi-table satellites, and it's my uh, it's my recommendations on the topic. I'm very proud of that article. I used pretty much nothing else but what's in that article, and I'm, I want to say I've won like 20, 30 EPT packages in my life, multiple WSOP seats, multiple PCA seats. But the reason I would play those, which I think uh, Tobias really hit on here, is I was playing those tournaments anyway. I, at the time, I had a backer. I had more money than brain cells. And I decided I was going to play these like 10Ks, right? And if it was in my budget already to play these bigger tournaments, it, it was okay to satellite into them as well. <clears throat> because if you think about it, let's say your average buy-in is 55. Well, is it a big problem to play a $1 satellite rebuy into a $55, especially if you got 20K in the bank account? Well, hell no. That's actually a... I think that can be a great way to build up your bankroll because people, as you'll find in that article, actually, while Barry's reading me the next question, I'll, I'll go grab the link for that article and he'll put it in the liner notes. Let's just keep giving Barry more work. What do you guys think? Now, anyway, the thing about that is I think that's a really good idea. As long as when you're multi-tabling, you can remember which one's a satellite and you have there's a lot of management that goes on in satellites. You got to really know the stack sizes of the other player. You got to know what stack size threshold you're trying to get to. You have to know what strategy you're trying to and trying to enact at that table. And for this reason, let's say I normally played 12 tables was usually what I played. On the days I was trying to sat into something, it'd be more like 6 or 8 with only like one or two other saddle with only one or two of those tournaments. But there were some days back when I was just trying to make money and I was just job one was do no, do not go back to the traditional working world. There were days I just played satellites to everything. I used to just play. I didn't play Sundays for like the first year, two years. I was a professional poker player. I thought people who played Sundays were idiots. I thought, I just thought it was a variance bomb. I didn't know how the hell you were supposed to play all week grinding out these like 20% ROI tournaments and small buy-ins to go throw all that money into the flames of one Sunday uh, with just these variance messes that could occur. So I just played the satellites because I noticed everybody was multi-tabling and not paying attention at all. And I would just see people do... I see him seppuku constantly. And yeah, that helped me run up a bankroll, but I was always playing satellites to, I was playing satellites on networks that were not poker stars because people actually grind those out. I was playing them on sites where people were just crap at them. And I just loved them. By the way, satellites on America's card room, people are effing amazing. People win tickets and they forget all the time. You'll be sitting at tables where there's just four people sitting out. You want to tell – there's people who are like – you say ACER is soft. I, I don't think it's soft. And I'm like, look, I get it if you don't understand the North American poker player. It can be a little bit confounding. But you cannot tell me that, that satellite isn't soft. I love that stuff. But, yeah, I would do that. Uh, only tournaments you could afford with your bankroll to begin with. And by the way, guys, if you want to take 5% of your money 
if you're a professional player and you want to take 5% of your profits at the end of every month just to play satellites, go sick. That kind of kept me going when I was just grinding my life away when I was 19 years old. And when I got to, got to go to Manila uh, uh, off of one of those like running it up like $15 into $150 to $500, whatever it was, right? It was one of the most fun times in my life. But the reason it was really fun is because I got into that tournament with whatever was my 5% of my profits, right? It was 111 bucks or something. And I, I had no stress attached to it. Then after that, I got a backing deal and people were trying to get me into everyone. I had to get into these tournaments. It was really scary because I was in over my head. You don't want to be in that case. And also, if you have a job where, hey, you don't like golf, you don't want to pay greens fees, but you make good money and you have a hobby and it's poker, go sick. Have fun. Just be responsible. Okay. And let's get one more question in for this show and then we'll wrap it up. And we've got one right at the end here from our good friend G. Uh, G writes in, he says, I'm often check raising pot size with small pairs on boards. Alex recommends in his book, Myth of Poker Talent. I have never turned a set when get called. I gave up all the time with my air ball on the turn and dry board because what is he calling pot size check raise with on a dry board? On a bricked wet board, I can sometimes follow through, but I often do not have the courage, I guess. Any comments on that? Thanks, G. Sorry, guys. I muted my mic while I was uh, typing and trying to get that. Uh, I, while I was trying to get that multi-table satellite article, and I I couldn't get the mute button to unmute for a second. Uh, G. Usually, the reason it's a good idea to check raise is why. It's a bad idea to double barrel. And G, I want to thank you for sending in this email because you just perfectly showed what humans struggle with. The whole reason you check raise the flop, you even said it yourself. It's like, what is he calling a pot size check raise with is the reason you do it is he C bets with everything. And he's probably not going to the turn without second pair. And if he opens everything, C bets everything and only continues with second pair, he's folding 55% of the time. Your pot size check raise needs to work 50% of the time. Yippee skippy. It's profitable. But what you're struggling with is what humans struggle with. All humans struggle with is accepting losses. It was a profitable idea, most likely. And you executed. Your work is done. If you're not flopping sets, such is life. You're not supposed to. In fact, they miss 96% of the time, uh, or whatever it is. Let's see. 45 cards out of 47. I can't do math that high. Anyway, but the better question to ask yourself is, are they flatting your check raises with high cards? My overwhelming guess is most likely not. People really do not like bet calling with high cards. You have to go into higher stakes tournaments or regular, you know, two, four in Vegas before you start seeing people picking off the check raise move. But I'll let you know, I, I don't do that check raise nearly as much. I don't know why the myth of poker talent has a proof for a capped board versus a guy who calls second pair or higher on the river just proving on certain boards you could close your eyes and triple barrel and it, it would be profitable if you know the guy does that nobody cared about that section because it's 20 pages long and all the card runners ev calcs and how to do it take a really long time but that paragraph i wrote about check raising or four paragraphs or five paragraphs or whatever I have had that section parroted back to me no less than 100 times since that book came out. And the most complaints I've had about that book is people used to just check fold to me all the time. Now they check raise and they go after me and yada yada, right? 
So there are games where that does not work anymore. For one, I did not run that play once in Atlantic City because I knew I didn't do it in Baltimore either. Oh, no, I did it once in Baltimore. I ran into it. But uh, you need to know that play, because of its simplicity, and because simple things are easier to learn than complex things, people have picked it up pretty quickly. So there are games it's not going to work in. Uh, Generally, any tournament $500 or higher in Las Vegas or LA, people are going to be a little bit more attuned to it. 1Ks or higher the rest of the rest of the world. 1-2 or higher cash. And if you're playing Euro anything, people are going to really know about it. Like if you're playing on Poker Stars, you you got to be really careful where you run that play because most of those guys been there, done that, got the T-shirt have been playing, you got to remember, there's a lot of parts of Europe where if you're making 1,000 USD per month, you're out earning the average person by like two, three times, right? And those guys have never lost their right to play poker like Americans did, and they have been playing poker professionally for eight, nine years. They understand what's going on. You're not going to be able to run that move that often. So... Now, if you got a guy who's like a 35-27 with a 4% 3-bet who has played 400 tournaments in his life and they all happen to be around the holidays, according to Sharks, go, that's the kind of guy who's probably just opening everything, C-betting everything, and then when he misses, he folds versus your check raise. Go ahead and run it versus him. If it's an 18-15 opening from the hijack whose C-bet is 64%, no, no, don't do it. So I think those would be the better questions to ask, G. I'm sorry, I kind of hijacked your thread and turned it into something I really did want to discuss with you guys, but I hope that's all right. Okay. And that's all we have time for this week. Alex, how can people get in touch with you for further information on your webinars, products, and to get on your wonderful uh, email list that I've been getting loads of stuff from recently? And I should note that I have been slacking on reading your emails, but I did read that last one you sent out that was like your manifesto, uh, Jerry Maguire type letter. <laughs> I got, I, I've gotten like five or six emails like, is this your Jerry Maguire moment? I was like, I didn't think of it. I just drank a bunch of coffee and wrote a bunch of ass and didn't think of it much more than that. But yeah, I guess so. Uh, if you guys want to get my newsletter, you can go to pokeradrush.com, uh, go to the top right, and just sign up there. That's my old blog. I promise the newsletter looks better than that. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at the Auto. If you want to check out my long-form training videos, if you really like the YouTube videos and you want to hear me get a lot of time to discuss hand history reviews, uh, and I'm going to be going over G's hand history coming up next week, I'm going to be doing those videos. Sign up for Tournament Poker Edge. Uh, follow me on YouTube at Assassinato Coaching. And check out my free articles on America's Cardroom's blog. And yeah, uh, if you got any questions about anything, write me at alex at pokerheadrush.com. And more than anything, sign up for that newsletter because I'm making it a personal mission now to send out something free every single day that most likely most of the people are on that mailing list have not seen before. So I've got a lot of stuff sitting on a stockpile of content here because I've been working for 10 years on this stuff. And most of it is what they call evergreen. It stays relevant. And I'm just looking to release all of it. So yeah, be sure to sign up. You get new articles pretty much every single week, more sometimes multiple times a week. You get a new podcast every week. I do training videos every few weeks that are about an hour long, which are made with custom hand histories, PowerPoints, quizzes, etc. a lot of combinatorics. So that's when I get to really go long form and flex my stuff. And yeah, check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. Okay, and keep your questions coming in. Yeah, best way is to email questions at oneouter.com. Um, you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group. 
But as I say, preferences, email. Um, we'll get them read out on a future show. Alex, thanks for joining us. You beat the trains. You beat everything else. You turned up. And that's another one in the can. We've got two more till we're at 200. Um, until then, thanks for listening. Cheers. The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu.